I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Italian journalist Stefania Marizzi joins us to discuss her new book, Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. For over a decade now, Stefania has been covering the work of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. And in this conversation, we cover a number of different topics including WikiLeaks' release of documents related to the Guantanamo Bay detention camp, the Vault 7 documents about CIA cyber weapons, the trials of Julian Assange, comparing and contrasting the cases of Julian Assange and Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, and Stefania's personal story of being spied on and targeted for her reporting on WikiLeaks and Assange. All that and much, much more on this edition of Parallax Views. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Stefania Marizzi, author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, Stefania Marizzi, a journalist from Italy and author of the recent book, Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and thank you for having me. So, Stefania, just to start out, maybe we could talk a little bit about how you became uh, aware of WikiLeaks and sort of involved with covering the WikiLeaks story. I believe you had uh, a source that said, oh, I can't do this anymore. And then it sort of evolved from there. <laughs> yeah, sure. So you have to realize that I have been, uh, the first time I was interested, deeply interested in WikiLeaks was 2008. WikiLeaks was just in its infancy, basically, <laughs> because it had been... Uh, created by Julian Assange in the October 2006. So it was at the very, very beginning. And um, I had no idea who Julian Assange was. I had very little information on WikiLeaks. And uh, one of my journalistic sources at that time, I was working for the leading Italian news magazine, L'Espresso, uh, with, which has a deep focus on investigative journalism. I worked for them 10 years, and then I worked uh, four years for La Repubblica, uh, one of the most, um, one of the biggest Italian newspapers. 
And today I work for the major Italian daily Fatto Quotidiano after I resigned from La Repubblica precisely to keep doing my work on WikiLeaks, on the WikiLeaks case, which was no longer possible at La Repubblica. Anyway, in 2008, I was working um, as um, an investigative journalist for L'Espresso, and suddenly one of my journalistic sources, which had nothing to do with WikiLeaks or anything like that, um, stopped talking to me. She didn't want to meet anymore. She didn't want to have any contact with me, and she was convinced she was under illegal interception. And of course, there is no way to know whether you are under illegal interception. It might be uh, paranoia or it might be real. It might be absolutely real. But so I, I have never ever known what that journalistic source knew. After 15 years, I have no idea what she knew. However, that source who never ever taught me a single word about what she knew changed my journalism forever. Why? Because uh, I realized that I needed better source protection because the usual old-fashioned techniques you use in uh, news, newsrooms, even in these days, newspapers keep using mobile phones, keep using emails to contact sources, uh, keep using meeting in person. I mean, this, these uh, old-fashioned te techniques no longer work in this age of mass surveillance. You need more sophisticated techniques. And so I'm a mathematician. Uh, before going to journalism, I got a degree in maths and I knew that there was these things quite arcane, quite <laughs> hard to, to know, uh, which is cryptography. I had studied a bit of cryptography just Theoretically, I had just a theoretical knowledge, and I knew that cryptography protect communications. And but in those days, you know, today cryptography is uh, widespread. You use Signal, you use uh, WhatsApp, you use all these kind of things. But in those days, in two thousand eight, in two thousand eight, it was really unfriendly. <laughs> there was no WhatsApp, there was no Sigland, there was nothing whatsoever. There was PGP, of course, which is far from being user-friendly. So one of my sources in the field of cryptography told me that I had to have a look on that bunch of lunatics. And the lunatics were Julian Assange or Wikileaks. He was uh, kidding me, he was joking, but he clearly appreciated the work. I knew very nothing about Wikileaks, uh, but that source put Wikileaks on my other screen in those very early days when Wikileaks was basically known just to a niche uh, public, nothing else. And I was deeply impressed. I was looking at their work uh, on from their website because I had no idea who Julian Assange was. I had no idea uh, of, of Wikileaks. Uh, of, uh, who was part of WikiLeaks and so on. So I look at their website, looking at the documents they were publishing, I was deeply impressed. For example, they had published uh, the manual of the uh, military task force operating Guantanamo, the infamous detention camp uh, Guantanamo. And I was deeply impressed because uh, many journalists had tried to get that document. Uh, even the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, had tried to get uh, that document using freedom of information, and they were unable to get it. And WikiLeaks got it. So I was impressed. I was asking myself, how did they get it? So why they did, whereas others didn't? And I had an explanation because clearly, uh, you know, in the darkness of secrecy, there were many, many people who disagree with the extremely brutal way the Bush administration was conducting the war on terror. And WikiLeaks was provided uh, some very advanced techniques, some very advanced solution to protect uh, uh, sources. So in the darkness of state secrecy, 
many people who disagree with these methods, with this brutal approach, with these tortures, with these uh, extrajudicial killings, with this uh, Guantanamo detention camp, were confident enough to send these documents to WikiLeaks, precisely because WikiLeaks offered advanced solution. They didn't rely on email, which basically exposed sources. They didn't rely on phones. And not only that, it was not just a matter of, uh, you know, of being very good, being very effective in protecting sources. It was also a matter of being um, bold, being courageous. Because as soon as they published that document, on Guantanamo, the Pentagon asked them to remove it from their website. You know, they said no. <laughs> and uh, you, you have to realize I've been a journalist for the last 22 years, and I can assure you that I have never known people uh, with the courage to, tell, to say no to the Pentagon. Very, very few exceptions, maybe Seymour Hirsch, maybe very, very few, maybe Glenn Greenwald resisting pressure for uh, before publishing NSA uh, documents. But I have, uh, until then, I had no experience of such huge courage. And that courage impressed me, you know. I, it impressed me because after the 9-11, I had seen how the press was, uh, the media in general, were mainly uh, printing whatever the, the CIA, whatever the Pentagon was telling. And that courage for me was a glimmer of hope. And so I started looking at them. I started establishing the first contacts and it was difficult. It was very difficult to establish the, the, the very first contacts. And suddenly one night in July, 2009, they needed me. They called me in the middle of the night. And I remember because it was very warm <laughs> night in Italy. It was um, end of July, almost August. It was a very, uh, very, very sticky night. And my phone started ringing in the middle of the night. And I didn't want to wake up. I wanted to sleep and they but the, the phone kept ringing so I wake up woke up and uh, I was told we are WikiLeaks I mean I could barely understand what was going on but I understood I was supposed to go to rush to my computer download the file and try to verify it I knew very little about WikiLeaks but that request to help to verify whether the file was genuine it was, it meant that WikiLeaks was operating like this, like a traditional uh, journalism where journalists receive documentation that try to establish whether the documents are, are genuine, uh, whether they are in, in the public interest, and if they are, they publish. So I, I want to get into uh some of the documents that were leaked by WikiLeaks over the years, because I think sometimes, you know, there's this focus on just Assange. And I like that the title of your book is WikiLeaks and its enemies, because, I mean, I think sometimes people forget that WikiLeaks uh, isn't just Julian Assange. Um, and I do want to talk about Assange later. Uh, but if we could, can we talk about uh, some of the information that WikiLeaks got out there, such as uh, the Vault 7 uh, files and also uh, early on uh, the collateral murder video and just uh, the the Afghan war files and whatnot. Uh, what do you think the the flashpoints are with regards to uh, the information they got out uh, early on? Well, they obtain amazing information. So this is Guantanamo manual about the task force, uh, which was basically exposing the lies of the U.S. government, which had uh, assured that the, the prisoners were accessible to the International Red Cross Committee, 
all of them, whereas it was not true. There were prisoners which were definitely not accessible to the International Red Cross Committee. And when prisoners are not accessible to the International Red Cross Committee, you can imagine all sorts of abuses. So you can imagine torture, you can, and indeed this is what happened. So this was an amazing document. Another amazing document, another amazing um, uh, document, yes, was the the documentation on the uh, Swiss bank, uh, Julius Baer, uh, which was allegedly involved in the in some kind of money laundering activities uh, in the, um, one of their branch was involved in uh, money laundering activities. And that was also amazing because, you know, the bank tried to, to, to get this information removed from their website. And, you know, I'm not sure if you realize the kind of pressure we experience in our, in our newsroom for the, from these big financial institutions which have uh, you know dozens of lawyers uh, and which can ruin you which make, can bankrupt us you know so we never we get this information we are we have very serious concern and in the case of wikileaks uh, they were able to publish even if the the bank was willing to go after them the bank went to they were able to basically go around the, the pressure from the bank, uh, building an alliance with the traditional media, building an alliance with the civil liberties union like Electronic Frontier Foundation. And at the end of the day, the bank was, you know, was so humiliated because the documentation they had tried to hide was known all around the world due to this uh, legal pressure and litigation and exposing these these documents all around the world with the New York Times covering the story, the, the Guardian covering the story. So they got the opposite effect. And that was amazing because they were using the internet. They're basically their um, nature of a stateless organization. Because if you exposed some documentation like that in Italy with a traditional media, you have to comply with Italian laws on the, on the media. If you expose those documents in, in the UK, in the US, you have to comply with the laws, the national laws. But being stateless, they were able to go around <laughs> these laws in order to make uh, possible to publish this information. That was also amazing for me. It, uh, it basically provide evidence that by using the structure of the internet, by using multi-jurisdictionals, multi you know, resources, you can publish what uh, usually you have see very serious concern to publish. So this was also an amazing, but clearly the most explosive revelations were those about uh, the the U.S. government, like the U the U.S. wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the Guantanamo documents about the detainees, which um, at that time we we knew very very little about these detainees or the cables, the US diplomatic cables, which basically expose scandals, expose, you know, crimes, expose abuses all around the world. So these documents are really amazing and unfortunately are the very same documents for which Julian Assange risks spending 175 years in prison in a supermax, you know. Real quick, since I mentioned Vault 7, uh, it's interesting for me because I, I believe those uh, WikiLeaks published the Vault 7 documents in 2017. And I think so many people were focused on, uh, you know, the aftermath of the uh, election and uh, just a lot of issues happening in the U.S. at the time that I didn't necessarily hear uh, a lot about Vault 7 um, in the news media. So could you talk just a little bit about what Vault 7 was, because I think uh, it remains sort of um, 
mysterious for some people that missed that story. Yeah. So both seven are uh, CIA top secret documents, secret and, and uh, also top secret in some cases documents about the CIA cyber weapons. Those are weapons which are which consist of software, uh, but they can penetrate computers. They can penetrate uh, uh, mobile phones. They can they can penetrate. Internet of Things devices, smart TVs, and so on. So it is a. This is this was the uh, entire the cyber arsenal of the CIA, and it was amazing to access this documentation. I was one of the very few who was a media partner for these documents, and I remember how I was concerned about uh, working on these documents. We were very few. And I was thinking, will we be able to expose this documentation uh, without being discovered, before being discovered? <laughs> because, of course, we could imagine that the CIA was after us, trying to stop the publication of these documents. And so I was really concerned. Uh, I remember I never, ever took notes in my in, in my. <clears throat> Uh, notebook. I never talk. I never talk with my editors uh, openly. So we. It was a very very complicated journalistic work to work on these documents. But these documents were absolutely in the public interest because they provided evidence of how the CIA was using vulnerabilities in the software in order to access your devices, your electronic devices. This so, included things like smart TVs, cars, yeah, web browsers. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, and one of the funding, one of the funding uh, cyber weapon was uh, the so-called weeping angel, uh, which was a cyber weapon to penetrate the smart TVs. And uh, so we could see this uh, cyber arsenal, we could get uh, information on the cyber arsenal without, at the same time, without putting in danger people by revealing the source code, by publishing, by disseminating the actual weapons, because that would have been criminal, of course. It is one matter to publish the manuals. You know, it is another matter to disseminate the actual weapons, which could be used. I mean, this is our weapons, but this is a this is software, so it can be disseminated very easily. And once it is out, uh, criminals, spies, uh, mafia people can use it for penetrating computers, for penetrating mobiles, for penetrating smart TVs. So it would have been absolutely. Uh, irresponsible to to publish to to disseminate the actual cyber weapons rather than the manuals. And I remember we we I was terrified that we could be discovered by the CIA before publishing these documents. Whereas when we published, uh, the CIA learned for the first time that they had lost control of their cyber arsenal, which which is unbelievable. I mean, these people have a budget for of something like $75 billion per year. And they and if WikiLeaks had not published, if this material had been stolen by um a hostile nation rather than uh WikiLeaks publishing this documentation with media people with the in partnerships with media, if it was stolen, this cyber arsenal by a malicious actor, rather than published by WikiLeaks, they would have never known if, they, if the malicious actor had not made the information publicly available. So this gives you a measure of how these people have no control and their security is full of holes full of um, all sorts of problems to an extent that their cyber arsenal was <laughs> completely accessible, you know, was completely, imagine if you have a, a, an ordinary, a normal arsenal 
uh, abandoned in these conditions with no serious security measure. It would be a scandal. It would be, you know, it would be people exposing that airplane or uh, ships or, uh, you know, machine guns are are fully accessible to everyone. But in this case, there was no scandal. Everyone was blaming WikiLeaks and Julian Assange for, for the publication rather than blaming the US government for such a being out control, having no serious protection of the cyber arsenal, you know? Yeah, and I, I was going to say, I, I think, um, you know, I know there's questions about whether he was the leaker of these documents or not, but, you know, Joshua Schultz, um, he's facing, I think, up to 80 years. So, I mean, the, C the CIA was very angry about these leaks. Uh, the CIA was upset. We don't know whether Joshua Schultz was actually the the source for WikiLeaks, we know absolutely nothing. It is the U.S. government uh, which claim, uh, which says he is. We know absolutely nothing, and but we do know that the the CIA was upset to an extent that the head of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, at that time he was he had been nominated by Donald Trump. He ask his agency for plans to kill or kidnap Julian Assange. And he wanted to kill or kidnap just for this publication, for, for this journalistic activity. This is the most serious thing. He didn't want to kill for other reason, just for publishing information truthful information because the information was absolutely so you know it was software so expert could verify the lines of software and and say this makes sense this absolutely makes sense this this software does what he he claims to do you know so it was uh, easy to verify because it was software and uh, it was truthful information. It was definitely in the public interest. And the CIA want, planned to kill and kidnap Julian Assange for, for doing journalism, which is, uh, I believe it's a um, massive scandal. You expect this kind of things in a, you know, in an authoritarian state, basically. So in terms of the figure of Julian Assange, you've met Assange, you've spoken with him. Uh, so you know, th there's a lot of different views of Julian Assange. There's people who do not like Julian Assange. There's people who are big supporters. Uh, you know, he's been accused of so many things over the years. People say, oh, you know, he was he was trying to get in bed with Trump uh, uh, by going uh, and releasing the, the Clinton emails or WikiLeaks releasing the Clinton emails. So th there's there's people that will say that there's people that will say, uh, you know, no, Julian Assange is a hero. Uh, he's releasing all this information the public needs to know about. So who is the Julian Assange you know? Uh, you know, because we have all these different views of Assange, but I want to get from you your experience of Julian Assange and your sort of assessment of who he is as a person and what you think people get wrong about Assange. Yes. So I know him because I have known him for many, many years since uh, 2009 when uh, <clears throat> I first work as a media partner, and since then, I have worked on all of them, on all the secret documents, excepting very, very few uh, data sets which were released by WikiLeaks without any media partner. So I know uh, very well the work, and I know him very well. So he's a complicated human being, if you ask me, <laughs> and uh, it's very easy to read him uh, improperly in a um, wrong way, I think. At the same time, I, I'm 100% sure Julian Assange is, um, is a tremendously courageous and talented person. And uh, he, WikiLeaks uh, he is, was possible, has been possible thanks to his undisputable talent and courage. Because you need 
huge talent and courage to create something like the WikiLeaks. And of course, he didn't do it alone, all these things alone. The world, WikiLeaks is a media organization. There is no doubt about this. WikiLeaks is a media organization. It has uh, a few journalists, not many journalists, a few journalists and tech people and lawyers and so on. Uh, and so Julian Assange didn't do it alone, <laughs> this work alone. Uh, at the same time, he's um, very, very brilliant. He's a genius, I would say. And um, <clears throat> he has been demonized so much for, <laughs> for over a decade that even St. Francis' uh, reputation would have been destroyed after a decade of demonization. He has been accused of putting lives at risk. And you know, these documents have been published, were published 13 years ago. After 13 years, there is not a single victim. There is not, the US government <clears throat> hasn't been able to, to mention, to name a single person who was killed, who was uh, injured, who was put in prison as a result of this publication. Then he was accused of being um, a rapist. He was put under investigation for nine years and uh, he there was never a charge. They had any chance to charge him if they wanted to do it. They could have question, charging, they did question actually twice. They did, uh, they did question him uh, twice and they could have charged him. They could have put him on trial for rape. They never did it. And they finally closed this investigation in 2009. And after nine years at the primary, you know, at, at the preliminary stage, you know, I have followed as a journalist, I have followed investigation. I have never seen a, an investigation like this, open and closed three times uh, with the um, prosecutors who didn't want to travel to London to questioning when they could have done it immediately. They could have charged him immediately if they had evidence, they didn't. Then it was the um, the, the time he was accused of being bad with Russia, and no evidence has ever surfaced that he there was a Russian connection. Then he was accused of being in bed with Trump, <laughs> and you know he was charged by Trump. He wasn't charged by the by the Obama administration. Quite the opposite. The Obama administration opened its investigation in 2010, but never charged him. So if he was in bed with Trump, I can imagine Trump wouldn't have charged him and put him in this situation for which he risks 175 years. So this demonization campaign has uh, deprived him of any empathy of the public. So the public has a completely distorted uh, perception of Julian Assange, whereas he's a tremendously courageous person and a person of indisputable talent. That that was a good lead into my next question, because I, I'll be honest, I have listeners from both sides of this that are big supporters oh. and other listeners that uh, are just very critical of Assange or have a very negative sort of view of him. What would your response be to people who are skeptical of Assange? Well, I would respond, look at this case. He has revealed... Uh, war crimes in Iraq. He has revealed torture in Iraq, in Afghanistan. He has revealed documents the, like the US diplomatic cables, which have allowed to uh, you know, provide evidence of pressure on authorities, German authorities, Italian authorities, to grant impunity to the CIA for the extraordinary rendition, for example. He has revealed documentation, crucial documentation on the Guantanamo detainees. And you know, all his case is about these documents. This about US classified documents exposing torture and war crime. And whereas the war criminals, those who have tortured, those who have killed 
hundreds, thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands innocent civilians, they have never ever spent a single day in prison. So look, at this is the matter. This is the real matter. The people who have the courage to expose the state criminality at the highest level have paid a massive price. They took the best years of his life, you know? And even if- And, and I was gonna say too, not just Assange, but also people like uh, Chelsea Manning as well, Absolutely. who worked with WikiLeaks. Absolutely. Yeah. They, the, the US authorities have destroyed the, the lives of uh, the sources, journalistic sources of whistleblowers and the journalists who had the courage to expose state criminality at the highest level, whereas they have granted impunity to the war criminals, to the torturers. And these people enjoy their families. These people enjoy uh, sleeping in their beds with their children, so with their wives, whereas Julian Assange has never known freedom again since 2010. Since 2010, they took the best years of his life. And even if you will step out of Belmarsh, the high security prison in London in which he has been since 2019 when he was arrested, no one will give back those years to him. No one, he will never have it. And he will probably will come out destroyed because this is what they are doing. They are killing him. People ask me, do you think they will kill uh, why, if he goes to the US, they are already killing him. They are breaking him down. They have destroyed him mentally and physically, you know? And so the, the this is, you, you look at the, at the real matter. Don't look at the demonization. Don't look at the propaganda around this case. Here are the facts. The war criminals are free. They never spent a single day in prison. They enjoyed their families. Whereas the people who had the courage to expose their crimes, their dirty crimes, their uh, appalling <laughs> crimes, they have never known freedom again, or they have spent eight years in prison and tried to commit suicide three times like Chelsea Manning, or they have to live in exile like Snowden. This is what the case is about, you know? You know, I have been, my family was anti-fascist during fascism, during Mussolini. And my family was uh, uh, teaching me, was explaining me, uh, you should go look around. You should keep your eyes wide open and to realize when things change around you and grasp what is changing. This case is uh, something that really scares me because we are heading to a very dark place where the war criminals are completely free and the journalists and the sources who had the courage to expose their crimes, they go in prison forever, you know? So, and this is happening for the first time, never before the US had put in prison a journalist for revealing truthful information in the public interest. This is the first time in US history. So this, this case is about, uh, we are at a crossroad. We can decide we go into this direction or the other direction. And if we go into this di direction in which the journalists who expose war crimes go to prison for life, well, our society is, is no longer a democracy because in a democracy it must be possible to reveal state criminality at the highest level. In a dictatorship, you cannot do it. They send you killers, they kill you, you know? But in a democracy, it must be possible. This is what the Julian Assange case is about. I just had a few more brief questions and, and I we have to get into this as well. Um, so the, the people that say, okay, Assange, he's not a journalist. He's just a hacktivist, you know, and the allegations that he was uh, involved in actual hacks. What do you say to those people? Um, how would you push back? Well, he what's happened, again, what's the evidence that he was involved in the hack? They have no evidence whatsoever. If you read the indictment where they claim that Julian Assange conspired with Chelsea Manning, what's the evidence here? I mean, the, the, the computer forensic experts uh, were very, uh, were very 
you know, went in depth of these allegations, of these charges. And they have, the US government has no evidence whatsoever of this uh, conspiracy between Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange to uh, crack a password hash. They have no evidence whatsoever. And the forensic expert says that it's more likely that the the Chelsea Manning wanted to crack a password to uh, or and other people were trying to hack a, uh, a password hash to install uh, forbidden software to watch films, to play, to listen to music, and so on. In addition to this, they rely on FBI informants who are completely unreliable, who have lied. They People like the Icelandic FBI informant, Siggy, basically admitted in an interview with the Icelandic uh, news magazine, uh, Stundin, that he lied. He lied. He uh, accused Julian Assange falsely, you know? So they are relying on people who who have this background. So how can you take seriously? You know, these hacking charges are just a way around the journalistic protection. This is what they want to do. The US government is, is completely aware, is uh, absolutely aware that whatever Julian Assange has done is whatever we traditional journalists do. He received documentation, he verified it. He tried to redact dangerous information because we did it. We all did it, and he did, and WikiLeaks did it. It's absolutely not true that he published whatever he got it. It's absolutely not true that the documentation was just dumped on the internet. I can provide you, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I can provide you the full uh, details of how hard we work on these documents to protect people. Uh, names, you know? And so it is not true that he dumps stuff on the internet. And what he has done is what whatever, what we traditional journalists do. And we were there. So we, we were there. So we can say what really happened. So I just had two more main questions because I know we're running a little bit short on time. Uh, the first is, what does... Uh, the extradition case against Assange mean uh, for press freedom? And I think you would argue that it goes further than even just press freedom, but freedom more generally. Could you uh, just explain what the stakes are with this case? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this case is about, uh, as I said, a journalist revealing war crimes, about a journalist revealing state criminality, people going around and making people disappearing in the middle of the night like extraordinary rendition, torturing brutally people, detainees, and so on. And they want, the US authorities want to put Julian Assange in prison exclusively for publishing this information, for receiving and publishing this information. And as I said, the, the hacking charges are, ju are just a way around the journalistic protection so that they can say, oh, he's not a journalist, he's a hacker. He's doing something that journalists don't do. He's hacking, you know? And the extradition case, I let me tell you, the moment he leaves London and he gets extradited, Julian is gone. He has no chance whatsoever of winning the case in the US. Absolutely no chance, because this case is about national security in the so-called spy court, you know, Southern District of Virginia, where people who have, you know, this kind of national security cases have no chance whatsoever, no chance whatsoever. And he has no chance of a fair trial. Why? You know, they are, they are, they 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 want to extradite a person whom the CIA wanted to kill, plan to kill or kidnap. How can you think that he might he might have a chance of a fair trial when the CIA devised a plan to kill him? And how can you think that he can get a fair trial considering that the 
the CIA got access to his legal information, so his legal strategies, his legal uh, argument. How can you believe that, <laughs> you know? It's clearly impossible to have a fair trial. So I believe, I believe that the moment he get he get extradited from from London, Julian is gone, and that's why I hope that he will be able to win the case here in Europe. Because the moment he's extradited, he has no chance. And of course, uh, if they can extradite. Julian Assange, it will not end here. They will extradite the next journalist who will reveal the US dirty secrets. If they can extradite an Australian journalist who was pub who was not publishing from the US, who has nothing to do with the US, of course they will pub they will extradite the next Italian journalist, British journalist, Spanish journalist who we revealed their dirty secrets about uh, torture, about, uh, you know, wars and so on. So it will be a domino effect. He will have a domino effect. And uh, it will have a domino effect, even in terms of freedom of, of freedom of the press. Because of course, if the US, which is a democracy in which the press enjoys constitutional protection, you know, thanks to the First Amendment, if the US can extradite a journalist for publishing or revealing war crimes and put him in prison forever, of course other countries in the world which have no constitutional protection for the press will say, well, we will do the same. If the US uh, does this, we will go around, uh, along the same lines. So it will have a devastating effect, not just on journalism, not just on journalists on us, but most of all, on the right of the public to know. Because unless the public has the right to know what the government is doing uh, in their names and with their money, <laughs> it is you cannot call this democracy, you know? In a democracy, you have the right, the public has the right to know what the government is doing with their own, with their money and in their name. I just wanted to ask real quick, how, how would you compare the Assange case uh, to, say, a whistleblower case like um, the case of Daniel Ellsberg, who famously uh, got the Pentagon Papers out there? Uh, how, how would you compare and contrast those two cases? Yeah, they are very, very similar. The, the, let me tell you, during the, the extradition hearing, I have been covering the extradition hearing. I'm a witness in the case due to my work on the documents. So uh, I testified on how we redacted documents and so on. But in addition, I have followed and reported on the extradition case. And during the extradition hearing, the US authorities and the US lawyers were doing whatever they could to try to make an argument that, that Julian Assange is not Daniel Ellsberg. He's not Daniel Ellsberg. So he's not uh, a hero. He's not a person who revealed this information for noble for um, for good reason. And he put at risk people. He dumped the stuff on the internet, whereas Daniel Ellsberg didn't dump stuff on the internet. So they were trying to, to say he's not Daniel Ellsberg, he's no hero at all. Whereas Daniel Ellsberg, <laughs> who testified in the, in the British court, said he did what I do, he did what I did, and he is precisely what I what I was, you know, and not only this. During an interview I had recently with Daniel Ellsberg, he explained me that what the U.S. authorities, the Nixon administration, which was an infamous administration when it comes to the attacks to the press, it was it had the Nixonian hate of the press. You know, uh, the Nixon administration did precisely the kind of things that Julian Assange experienced. They plan to kill Ellsberg. They plan, the US authorities plan to kill or kidnap Julian Assange. 
they try to uh, go, um, in the case of Daniel Ellsberg, the US authorities try to access his psychiatrist office in search for his secrets to blackmail him to silence. In the case of Julian Assange, he was spied. All of us were spied, even me. In my case, my phone was an opening too and the SIM extracted secretly. So they spied on Julian Assange, they spied on, on his uh, doctors, they spied on the lawyers, on the journalists. And so these kind of things, uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg was making a parallel and telling me, look, what they did to him, they did to me. So there is really no difference what happened. Clearly, Daniel Ellsberg was a source. He was not a journalist. In the case of Julian Assange, he's the journalist, a journalist, not a source. But what happened is precisely the same. So Daniel Ellsberg is not, you know, it's not by chance that Daniel Ellsberg is so pro-Julian Assange. He's trying to do whatever he can to support Julian Assange, precisely because he went through the same experience. Yeah, real briefly, I, I was going to add to that as well. It, it's very interesting to me because you had these right-wing forces going after uh, Daniel Ellsberg, and you have the same sort of right-wing forces going after uh, Assange. I mean, people forget uh, Sheldon Adelson, who's a big Republican donor. He ties into this story as, I believe, his security firm uh, was contracted to go after Assange, correct? Yes, basically, as far as we know, uh, there was this company, Spanish company, which was assigned to the security of the embassy, physical security, in order to avoid intrusions in the buildings and so on. And suddenly this um, company started working apparently according to protected witnesses. So we know these things because of some protected witnesses who were working for this company called the UC Global, based in Spain, because the, the Ecuadorian authorities wanted a, a European company in charge of the security in order to uh, manage visa easily, whereas if they were using an Ecuadorian company, they had problems of visa uh, in Europe, in, in London. So they hired the Spanish company, and the Spanish company started, according to the protected witnesses, started working for the American friends. And the American friends were the CIA, the US intelligence, and apparently they were working under, uh, through a contract with this um, Sheldon Adelson. And in these days, we have a um, major investigation in Spain to try to get evidence about this. And all authorities cooperated with this, um, uh, with this investigation. For example, Italian authorities cooperated. I was questioned as a witness and as a victim targeted, heavily targeted, whereas the UK and the US authorities are not cooperating at all with this investigation. So it will be really hard for the Spanish prosecutors to get evidence of this uh, cooperation, this work for the CIA. So I know I've kept you a little bit over here, so I, I do want to let you get going, but um... I just wanted to ask, uh, you, you mentioned uh, that you were even spied on, and I know you don't really focus on that in the book. Uh, the book is not about you, it's it's about WikiLeaks, and I know you've said that in other interviews. Uh, but briefly for my listeners, uh, could you talk about how you were targeted? Yeah, I mean, so you have to realize that in 2017, I discovered an, a very important fact. Um I discovered that the UK authorities at the Crown Prosecution Service, you have to focus on this important, crucial public authority in London. It's called Crown Prosecution Service. And basically it's the public authority through which the Swedish prosecutors were acting in the Swedish case, 
because he was under investigation in Sweden, but he was in London. So the Swedish prosecutors needed the cooperation of the British authorities to manage this investigation. And in these days in which the Swedish investigation is no longer active, has been dropped, the Crown Prosecution Service is the public authority through which the US Department of Justice is acting to try to extradite Julian Assange from London to the US. So this public authority, Crown Prosecution Service, is absolutely crucial, central in this story of in the legal case against Julian Assange. In 2017, I discovered that the Crown Prosecution Service destroyed crucial documents on the Julian Assange case. They never provide any explanation of why they destroyed it, what they destroyed, on whose instruction. And let me tell you, I live in Italy, and Italy is in, in famous for all sorts of scandals and judicial scandals, legal scandals, but not even in Italy. We have uh, the case in which a public authority destroyed crucial documents about a case, a legal case, as the case is ongoing, is highly controversial and high profile. We never had this case, but they did. So in 2017, I discovered this in November, and I discovered this through uh, FOI litigation. I'm litigating uh, to access the full documentation of the case. I discovered this, and uh, I went to the embassy to discuss this and other matters with Julian Assange. At that time, in November, November and December 2017, he was inside the embassy. And those were the months in which the CIA was furious about Julian Assange because uh, we, we had revealed the Vault 7 documents. So in those months, the CIA was completely upset about Julian Assange. I went to the embassy to visit him and to discuss the destruction of documents and other matters. And as soon as I arrived, I realized there was something deeply wrong because never before uh, my backpack with my journalistic material notes and so on had been confiscated, never before. So as soon as I arrived, my backpack was confiscated. I was not even allowed to bring a pen <laughs> to the meeting room where I, where I was meeting Julian Assange. So as soon as I came out, I talked to my newsroom, La Repubblica, at that time was working for the Italian Daily La Repubblica, and I told them, look, I have been unable to do anything, any interview or whatever, because I was not even allowed to bring a pen with me inside the meeting room. And uh, I had no serious, I had. I was wondering why they had behaved like that, why they had confiscated my backpack and so on. Two years later, in 2019, um, in October 2019, we discovered what really happened when I was meeting Julian Assange, someone had secretly accessed all my devices, including my mobile phones. I had uh, uh, basically a dumb phone, which means um, a phone which is not a smartphone. Uh, I had an encrypted phone. I had an iPod touch and they unscrew it. They opened my phone in two they extracted the scene, and fortunately, they took pictures. So <laughs> I have these pictures, I have the videos of uh, me and Julian Assange discussing. They were doing who did it, uh, allegedly, allegedly, uh, the security company in charge of the uh, of security and uh, allegedly working for the CIA. So, you have to realize that during in the last year, during my work uh, on the WikiLeaks uh, documents and file, I had experienced a lot of problems with my communication. I was telling my editors, "Look, I have problem. My emails disappear. Uh, my um, I text messages disappear, and so on." No one was believing me. Well, no one was taking me seriously. When we got this evidence, 
of serious interference with my electronic device, I asked myself, maybe this, <laughs> this is why I have experienced all these problems. And I remember, I remember the last time I visited Julian Assange in the embassy before he was arrested. It was November 2018. And five months later, he was arrested. He was arrested on April 11, 2019. So I went out of the embassy. He was in, um, in such bad shape. He was really with this long hair, white hair, white bird, and so on. And I came out of the embassy and I, I immediately contacted my editors of La Repubblica and I told them, look, he's dying, he's dying. He's, I found him in a very bad shape. He's lucid, but he's dying physically. He's, uh, he lost many kilos and he's, very, very, uh, he's in very bad shape. And I was waiting for my editors trying to, to tell me, well, you should write uh, a piece about it. You should write uh, um, uh, an article, a reportage, some. But I didn't hear anything. After two days, uh, my editor called me, Stefania, why you are not replying? And I told them, Replying to what? Well, we have been trying to call you for the last two days. We sent text messages, emails. We called you and you never replied. I had absolutely nothing on my phone. I had absolutely no text messages, no calls, no emails. So all my communication had been basically kind of isolated for two days after I came out of the of the embassy. And now I have this case in Spain, in Madrid. I filed a criminal complaint against UC Global, hoping that we, we can obtain evidence of who did the what on whose instruction. Well, Stefania Marizzi, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax views. I want to have you back on again in the future at some point because there's so many aspects of this story that we could have talked about, right? Like uh, Palantir and H.B. Gary, uh, you know, or, or, you know, Nils Melzer, uh, the U.N. Special Rapporteur, yeah. who has spoken out about uh, the treatment of Assange at Belmarsh. So I want to have you back on in the future because there's so many other aspects that we can't cover this uh, uh, sprawling story. It would take hours to really unpack it all. But I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views and uh, just give you the last word. What do you hope listeners get out of Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and its enemies? What's the main sort of point you hope people will take away from it? Well, I wrote this book based on 13 years of my investigative work on the case on and on eight years of FOI litigation to get the documentation about the case, it has been tremendously hard. And I hope that this work will make uh, readers to understand that we are at a crossroad. And if they can extradite Julian Assange and put him in prison for life, for his entire life, our society will go to a very dark place. And so we had to do whatever we can to win the, this case, absolutely. Because if we lose this case, it means that they can put in prison a journalist for revealing war crimes. And it means that our society goes authoritarian. It doesn't matter that they don't kill you. It doesn't matter that they don't do what um, extremely brutal things so you can see in a dictatorship. The moment you cannot reveal state criminality at the highest levels, you are no longer in a democracy. So it is up to us to stop this. You know, people has changed. People has changed the world deeply. The world was much more brutal in the past, you know? And it has changed, not randomly, not <laughs> by chance. It has changed because People oppose the worst instincts of our society. So I, I want to make people realize that 
we are at crossroad and we absolutely have to win this case. And I want to use my journalistic work to um, contribute to create a world in which you can reveal war crimes and you can sleep peacefully in your bed with your family without any concern, without any fear, without being in prison, uh, because this is what uh, democracy is. And if we don't have this, we are no longer in a democracy, you know? Well, thank you again, Stefania, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks so much to you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stefania Maurizzi. And if you enjoyed said conversation, you'll pick up her book, Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.